While Bill is gone, we can play. Um, while Bill is gone, Katie and I will be preaching through the Gospel of John. Now, this gospel does not record any of parables of Jesus, those, as Bill called them, little yarns that he'd been preaching on. But in John's gospel, Jesus speaks. And for those of you that have what's called a red-letter Bible in which Jesus' words are printed in red, you will see that John's gospel is a sea of red ink. Jesus speaks and speaks. And Jesus is known for his stringing together of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Now, John's gospel may not have any parables, but these figures of speech, of similes and metaphors, it's the word choice that carries heavy weight of meaning. It demands your critical thinking. It demands your critical thinking. The gospel also relies upon what it calls signs to reveal Jesus' divinity. Rather than describe walking on water as a miracle, the author of that gospel identifies them as a sign, and there's a key difference. Think of a sign. When you're driving along on the highway and you need a Starbucks, when you see a sign at the exit, you don't stop at the sign. The sign points to where you need to drive. In John's gospel, the signs Jesus performs continually point to God. Now, Katie began a week ago with the opening chapter, an ethereal uh, vision of in the beginning was the word in her Christmas in July story. John's Gospel has a very ethereal version of Jesus being at one with God from the very beginning. It reminds me of a t-shirt I once saw entitled, Jesus is God's Selfie. Whoever wrote that must have read John's Gospel because Jesus is absolutely presented as God in the flesh. When Jesus takes center stage, the first sign that he produces is an abundance of wine at the wedding at Cana, showing us just how much God cares for our earthly existence and that when Jesus gets involved, it's delicious, it's overflowing, and it's better than we could have ever imagined. After that sign, he then overturns the tables of the money changer in the temples. And when you mess with someone's money, you get their attention. And he got the attention of the Pharisees. And then he continued to do a whole lot of signs. As the established Jewish authority, the Pharisees are filled with anxiety about what's happening in broad daylight and that everyone is now witnessing. Just before our reading picks up, scripture claims that I quote, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. So listen next for what happens when a curious God-fearing man comes to Jesus. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I have said to you, you need to be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn it, but that all may have eternal life. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. Dear God, your spirit is like the wind. It blows where it will. Let it blow into our minds, stir us to listen and to believe through these words. Let your spirit blow into our hearts that we may feel your abundant love, strong enough to claim us, gentle enough to hold our fears, and persistent enough to keep us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now occasionally a commercial on TV will capture your attention so much that rather than get up and go to the fridge, you watch it again and again, and not because you want the product. You might not even notice what the product is. But in that 30 to 45 seconds, somehow or another, that commercial just nails it, nails real life. And here's one of my current favorites. The commercial opens and there's a little girl who's dressed in a bathrobe in her pajamas and she appears in a darkened kitchen opening the refrigerator. And just then her dad walks in and he is as shocked to see her as she is to see him. But he decides he's going to bust her and he does so in a whisper. What are you doing? And she whispers in return, Mom said I could have a midnight snack. Dad's still flustered. Well, I say it's late, go back to bed. The little girl's confused. Why? You can see Dad is scrambling. Because I'm the boss. The little girl knows what's true. You're not the boss. Mom's the boss. <laughs> You've seen the commercial. Now he's busted and he knows it. Technically, we're co-bosses. Little girl knows what she knows and stands firm. Technically, mom's the boss. <laughs> so the scene fades as dad and daughter share a midnight snack. Thank you for laughing. Nighttime encounters. It's nighttime when often the truth shines brightly. Did you notice that it was in the night under the protection of darkness when Nicodemus knocks on Jesus' door? He needs to understand what's going on in broad daylight with all the signs and why people now believe in Jesus, but he is too afraid to ask in public. Nicodemus' identity as a Pharisee and position within the community are all of what define him. He's educated, he's respected, he's established. He thought he'd learned the ways of the world, but now admits he doesn't understand Jesus' ways that are completely turning it upside down. All of the encounters that people have in John's Gospel invite us to stand in their shoes. So can we see ourselves as Nicodemus? 
Imagine there's a young professional who navigated teen years without a misstep, mastered the academic requirements in college, landed the right internship, and now has a coveted management development role in a stable bank or insurance company. But the quote-unquote real world is not what she imagined. She's able to see through the veneer of company rah-rah and questions those in authority. Does anyone care about her as much as they are demanding that she care about them? Or maybe Nicodemus is a mid-level programmer who's worked in a variety of places because he's laid off a couple times. But now he's got a really good job with flexible hours. He works at home, which is great, so that he can be present with his kids. And being a good dad is the most important thing in his life. But he works all the time, and work and home bleed together. And he slowly becomes aware of his kids' ability to hear how people are treated in the workplace, particularly him at times, and how meritocracies work or not. Now, he may be able to suppress his frayed loyalties for his job and his faith, but what is he teaching his kids? Or perhaps Nicodemus is older. Nicodemus has, quote unquote, rung the bell. Nicodemus is the managing partner or the chief surgeon or the subject matter expert within an industry or reached the ultimate corner office. Not only has Nicodemus drunk the Kool-Aid throughout life, but is now setting the course for others to follow. We could go on and on with other images, more or less like us, because we get to be Nicodemus. Where we work and where we live establishes the rules for proper behavior. It sets the goals and establishes what counts as success. It defines what our circle of friends, it cultivates our ambitions and expectations, and it's the dominant thread that we use to weave the fabric of our lives. Work is also the place where we tend to silence our faith so as not to offend anyone. But too often it becomes so silent it loses any hold that it might have on us. But being Nicodemus-like assures us and startles us to know that the educated, the accomplished, and the thoughtful are still seeking. Being Nicodemus-like gives us permission to question when the daily grind challenges our sense of purpose and values, or a crisis has rocked the foundation we thought so secure and we find the day-to-day, -day, or the disciplines of economics or law or medicine just don't have the answers. When we need to know who we are and how we relate to others, we search for the signs that point to God. And it's theology for all of its mysteries and ambiguities, it's theology that shines the light of truth. So when the dark Nicodemus goes to Jesus and asks, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, no one can do these signs apart from the presence of God. And Jesus responds to his questions with, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now bear with me while I salvage our very insufficient English. Jesus speaks a word that I would rather translate. To see the world of God asks that you be both born again and born from above. Correctly translated, it is not either born again or born from above. It is both at the same time. But Nicodemus doesn't understand that, and he doesn't understand anything that's being said. He is a man seeking certainty. He has always known that he could rely upon what he knows, his law and his reasons, 
and all of that's failing him. Now his anxiety is so great, he doesn't have the capacity to grasp that word and particularly used as a metaphor. Life needs to make sense, and what is he to believe this born again, born from above? Now we usually don't get it either. Too often we read this passage of being born again and born from above, and it sends our antenna up. And I'll be the first to admit that when I see a street corner preacher who wants to know if I'm born again, I'm going to head the other direction. In my corporate traveling days, you feared sitting next to someone on an airplane, particularly a long flight, who might want to know and ask, are you born again? Are you one of those or are you one of us? It's a simple phrase that continues to confound today, labeling those who are saved as fanatics, not good, and dividing them from those who revolt and might be condemned. How we hurt each other. I confess I'm guilty. In today's political climate, we are receiving a daily lesson on the divisions between us. Too many labels define and exclude the other, presuming our divisions are all and nothing. Are you born again? Are you born from the above? Are you blue? Are you red? Are you with her? Are you against her? But it's also been reassuring this week to witness those who have the courage to cross the chasms of labels and preconceived notions of identity as Christians claimed solidarity with those Muslims who were Gold Star family members. Jesus asks Nicodemus and us to participate in the reality made known through his signs. When one is born from above, we receive a heavenly experience of God choosing us despite our merits or labels. Just to know that we're born from above blesses our lives in ways this earthly realm never can. And to be born from above specifies our origin and points to our salvation. To be born again is a temporal dimension of being able to see the world again with fresh clarity no longer divided or confined, being born again gives us the innocence of a child. And thank God we had the innocence of children with us today to remind us of when we can laugh and when we can smile and not worry about who we are and who the other people are. We're just supposed to be together. It allows us to cross the chasms and join when others exclude. To be born again also allows us to accept ourselves when we oftentimes wonder if we're worthy. When combined, and they need to be combined, these two aspects are life-giving ways of being present to one another and God. They open up possibilities that we could never create on our own. When Jesus tells Nicodemus to be born again and to be born from above, what he's asking Nicodemus is let God work in your life. We're smart though, so what's the catch? We've been offered something, and Nicodemus and we know that there always seems to be a catch. Jesus responds and offers what some ancient theologians have said is the entire Bible in one verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him has eternal life. The only catch is we need to just say yes to receive that which is given. Yes, I want the spirit to blow through my life, disrupting the stagnant with fresh air so that I can breathe again. Yes, I want a power beyond my ability to comprehend, a power that can animate my veins and flesh with new life. 
Yes, I want to feel alive and unbounded by who I am and how deeply I can love. Yes, I want the courage to stand up for others and myself when bullied in life. And yes, yes, please come when I fail and forgive me. It's this baptism that imparts on us a whole new identity and it becomes a sign to point us to a deeper journey with God. Now, some of you know I listen to podcasts, a lot of sermons, and there's a church that's very similar to Kenilworth Union, and I listen to this pastor's sermons quite a bit. And he recently described uh, presiding at a funeral for a congregant who had been quite successful financially and professionally. This man had been active in politics and the church and his alma mater, and he lived large with a sense of purpose. He also had very strict orders for people as to what to do and when to do it, and he managed details. So the pastor was a little anxious when the widow had said, don't worry, we've been told exactly what to say. Sometimes that's not always good. He received a file folder, and written in big letters was, he was to say these words exactly, but he was to say them slowly. So listen. After living a life with means, I've come to the conclusion that there are only two things that matter the most and only two things you can take with you into death. The love that you've given and received from people in your life and your relationship with God. Now we don't know if this man had a Nicodemus-like moment questioning how to live out his vocation, his privilege, and his faith, but we can probably imagine he did and he came to those conclusions the love that you've given and received from people in your life and your relationship with God is all that matters. Because, you know, living into your baptismal covenant, it doesn't necessarily make you meek. It doesn't. Nor does it deny you from being competitive. If anything, being marked as a child of God compels you to stand for excellence. So go ahead and drive a hard bargain in negotiating and stand by your commitment hold people accountable for the consequences of their actions and let people know that what they do matters and what you do matters. Being animated by God's spirit throughout all areas of our lives calls us and equips us to do and be our best. Exercising our talents and demanding that we treat others with respect. We treat them with respect as an accountant or a nurse or a teacher because as they do so, they are glorifying God with their talents and gifts. We are the only ones who can name a toxic workplace for such and do something about it or finally decide to leave it because we know what it's like to be alive. Nicodemus, he sticks around. He makes two more small cameo appearances in the Gospel of John. In chapter 7, when the Pharisees confront Jesus as if to imprison him without a trial because they don't like what he's doing, Nicodemus speaks up on his behalf, demanding that the rules in Jesus are respected because you're not supposed to treat people that way. And then on the last day of Jesus' life, Nicodemus witnesses Jesus being lifted on the cross, but by this time he is more than a witness. He's carried 100 pounds of ointment and joins two other men to take Jesus' body off the cross, to care for it, and to lay it in a tomb, giving it all the honor and dignity his Jewish faith demands. 
Nicodemus does all of this in the bright of day for everyone to witness. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. Nicodemus came to understand this, and this was the only good shepherd to guide his life. Please pray with me. God, you have spoken to us in so many ways, through the wind around and the beautiful nature, through the people sitting shoulder to shoulder with us in these words. Let it fill our hearts and minds. We pray this in gratitude for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.